There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April the 29th, 2010. For newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com websites. You'll see all the other sites I have there on the front page. Bookmark them, whatever you do, bookmark them for future use. Because whenever I admit to say this, uh, the com site will go on a freeze or I can't upload to it. And people don't know, they can get uh, all the audios from these alternate sites. So bookmark these alternate sites, the official sites will be listed there, and you can always get the latest shows. This happened just the other day with uh, Yahoo, in fact. And uh, you can also go into the site and see the books I have for sale. These are different books than the books you'll normally read. It's, they're they're non-linear in construction. They're meant to get you thinking as you really should be thinking. Uh, with your own abilities coming to the fore. And you can also see the discs and DVDs I have for sale as well. Uh, most of the customers come from the U.S., so I always start there and tell you that from the U.S. you can use personal checks to Canada. You, because we're all, we're all one country now, really, and we have been for a long time. We even have the same area code, one, for the country. That's it. And so personal checks are good. You can also use an international postal money order from your post office. Not the green one, which is internal only, but the international one. Costs the same. You can use MoneyGram, Western Union. You can use cash. Or you can use PayPal. Now, the PayPal says on the site for donations only, but you can send the appropriate donation and a separate email with your order your name and address, and I'll get it out to you. Same across the rest of the world. You can use uh, cash, uh, PayPal to order and donate. And donations are important because often that's how I trickle by here. And you can use Western Union or MoneyGram. And say cash is fine from uh, any country pretty well. And some people just get disc burned and passed to them because they don't like using computers. They play them on their CD players. You can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estere, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is P, as in Peter, the number 3, E, as in Elizabeth, the number 4, N, as in Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. And that's that out of the way. Now, for the last uh, few days, I've been coughing like crazy, and I've, I've got my sinuses just flowing here. And that's because of the heavy aerial spraying I get in this area. The air literally is as dry as a bone. It's impossible by the laws of physics, at least, at least how it used to be a few years ago, a very few years ago, because I'm surrounded by lakes here. I've had the snow melt. The snow uh, water is still lying in the ground, hasn't evaporated. It doesn't evaporate now into the air because the heavy spray contains aluminum oxide, which is incredibly hygroscopic, attracts the moisture right into it and takes the moisture in the air right to the dirt itself, right to the dirt level. And 
this area, people don't realize this, this, all, this was like Louisiana in the summertime. No kidding. Uh, we had the extremes of everything. We had the tremendous snow in the winter, certainly, but we also have an extreme summer as well. In fact, it's, it's fruit country and berry country here with very high humidity for summers, a very, very high, in fact, often higher than Louisiana and sometimes higher temperatures too, quite often higher temperatures. That's how it was, at least up to about four or five years ago until they changed their spraying mix. And now the air is as dry as a bone. Surrounded by lakes, temperatures going up right now to 75 during the day and 80 degrees, and nothing's evaporating off of the ground because of the chemicals they're spraying on us. So that's why my voice comes and goes. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, just explaining why my voice tends to come and go because your, your sinuses start flooding. Uh, during the day they're as dry as can be and then they start flooding in the evening and um, you end up with this incredible phlegm uh, coming out of nowhere and that's what chokes you all up. But this is common around this area now. Other people have got it too, not just myself. Of course, I know what's causing it and they don't. And... Um, I'm sure the doctor's offices are booming and the, the far, big pharma's booming as people just grab antihistamines galore and uh, uh, guzzle them because they don't understand what's really happening. And doctors too will just tell them they've got sudden allergies or they're, they're getting asthma, the new, the new adult type asthma that didn't exist before. It's all quite normal now apparently. And uh, incredible allergies are breaking out all over. But it's this heavy spring and just uh, this evening before the show, uh, I watched this blanket. We, see, we don't get clouds anymore. We, we get spray blankets. And if they've sprayed to the south or the east or the west or wherever, and the wind's blowing in the appropriate direction, you'll see this blanket just being pulled over the sky as it comes in. No definable clouds, just the, the grey mush, the whitish mush, and that's it. You're covered with uh, chem clouds. Um all this nonsense about going to geoengineer is rubbish. They know it, of course, all those involved in it, even those at the meetings. Because when you go into the meetings like the one they had in California there with the so-called scientists and all the specialists, uh, debating whether they should go ahead and geoengineer and debating all the pros and cons and possibly the terrible fallouts on health, etc., they all knew darn well uh, what was really going on and it had been sprayed for years because they partook in it. They all worked for the military-industrial complex. Some of them had contracts with the Pentagon and the Air Force and all the rest of it. So these guys knew their stuff, and they were not, believe you me, debating inside about something they were hoping to do in the future. That's just for public consumption. Because we are dumb, after all. You know, we've been, we've been taught to be dumb since we were born. We were, we were brought up in a scientifically controlled society, and standardized and made uniform, so we all think in the same way. We all accept the the system as it's presented to us. We we actually accept reality as it's been presented to us, and we don't question it. One of the statements that Bertrand Russell made was uh, to do with people and logic. He said, we used to think that people were reasoning creatures, but now we know that they're not at all. They're not reasoning creatures. 
Why did he say that? It's because basically being a totalitarian type himself and wanting to control the world on behalf of his, the guys he worked with, uh, all the, the upper aristocracy who dabbled in science and philosophy, they thought they had the right to literally not only control people and rule people, but teach them how to behave better to serve the same elite. And I'm not kidding about that. We, we, we see this sort of stuff in movies and tyrants and movies about the Middle Ages and warlords and stuff. It's never changed. It's never changed. In fact, these guys like, like the Huxleys and so on and nobilities of Britain, especially. Now, most of the nobility of Britain were uh, today uh, were actually brought in as high-class merchants that were knighted. But the other ones, too, uh, came up through conquest and slaughtering peoples through the Norman invasions, and they became the warlords, and they had all the serfs that they bought and sold amongst themselves, uh, which is a nice way of saying slavery. It covers it a bit. It says, a serf, you see, you're, you're, you're a server. And it doesn't sound so bad as being a slave, especially when technically they couldn't have slaves under uh, Christendom, as they called it at that time. But being good uh, guys, uh, as far as uh, understanding the psychology of people, uh, they just changed the term and called them serfs. Yeah. That's how they got around that. No great legal battles in those days. But nothing's changed, as I say, uh, except that the con games go on. And people, and I've explained this before, it's all to do with the way you're trained to perceive things. In ancient times, people used to put on a fire to cook something, say in the ancient Middle East, and uh, then one day some guy comes along, a follower of Zoroaster, and um, and says, oh, you can't do that anymore, that fire is holy, it's part of the sun, you know, and uh, bad luck will come upon you if you do that without permission. And then you say, well, how do I get permission? And I said, well, you say, I'm a priest of the sun. I'm, I'm one of the Zoroastrians, and we can actually help light it for you using a sacred fire from the sacred flame. And you'd pay you through the nose for that, and suddenly you were paying for something you'd always done for centuries, and it cost you nothing because you were taught how to perceive it. And within one generation, uh, the children would parrot this stuff. Oh, don't light that fire. You know, so we'll bring bad luck. We'll get cursed. And uh, you have to get the priests to do that, and they thought it was all quite normal. Today, it's the same with uh, taxes and stuff and, and departments of government from federal right down to local. We were taught everything is quite normal. You own property, but you don't own property. Uh, you own it, but you don't own it. You own it, but you don't own it. Click, 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 you're in double think, you see. Because, see, if you own something, no one can take it from you. If they take it from you, it's called stealing it from you. You understand that? That's a basic common sense, a tenet of, of existing. You either own something or you don't own it. And yet when you go to buy some old um, shack somewhere and you, you think you're making good, you know, you buy a, a starter home, which means you're a failure, I and mean, that's really what they mean by that, um, then you uh, sign a little document for property and under ownership actually has tenant. You're a tenant, not an owner. Big difference in tenant and owner. And when I was getting this old shack here, I had an argument with a lawyer. And I says, no, in that case, it says, he said to me, tenant means the same as ownership. I said, I come from Britain and I know my history. I, I said, so, uh, so he says, oh, it means the same thing. I said, well, if it means the same thing, in that case, write down owner. <laughs> Score out tenant and write down owner. That's what I said to him. Yeah, yeah. Lawyers are fantastic, eh? But anyway, you know, uh, then you get your, your tax bills. 
And what happens if you don't pay your tax? Well, they steal your home and they kick you off of it. And uh, then they resell it on some market or another uh, for what the claim is owed to them. Owed to them. Now, an extortion racket is an extortion racket. We've all seen the old mafia movies and understand how it works. I've mentioned this so many times. You have a little sh- shop or a store, and the guy comes in and he demands money off you. And you say, why? He says, to, to, for protection. And you say, well, protection from whom? And he says, protection from my boss. Well, what's the difference between that and some people coming to your door uh, on behalf of some council or whatever they want to call themselves with some official name, you know, rather than the head body smasher, as uh, the mafia would call them, he's got an official name, you see to alter your perception of things, and demand cash off you because uh, you should have paid them uh, taxes, which keep going up, of, of course. It's, it's this wonderful um, arbitrary idea they have. They can always stretch everything in every way they want, and you have no input into anything at all. Uh, so they, they'll steal your property. And if some yo-yo, uh, and this happened to me, by the way, some yo-yo across in the other hill, uh, who was in real estate themselves, uh, bought an, an area there, uh, and they paid $98,000 for this this parcel of land. Quite a big parcel of land, but it's, it's just the same kind of trees as I've got here. And uh, a house pretty much like the shack I've got here. Uh, being cunning little souls, you know, being in real estate, they've now got it up for sale after maybe three or four years, and they're asking $399,000. No kidding. There's the gall, the shysters, eh? Here's the gall, hoping some schmuck will come along. And they've probably got enough homes like that all over the place that they've bought for, for technically peanuts. And uh, and they'll, they'll wait and bide their time for some schmuck coming along that just can't refuse it, you see. Uh, or, or, or the wife will like the picket fence, which actually isn't there. The only fence they've got they stole from the railroad track because I saw them doing it. And uh, But anyway, uh, because of that, this little shack here, next door to it, uh, quadrupled in price, according to the taxman, for taxable value, right? So I said to the guy, well, if someone builds a Taj Mahal next to me, doesn't mean my shack's any different. It's still the same shack, you see, and the swamp's still the same swamp. But it doesn't work like that, you see, because it's a mafiosa which we, we think is an official thing. We've all been trained that this is the way it is. You see, you can't allow corruption and cons to start. The first generation that experiences a particular con must nip it in the bud right away and use their logic because they've got the ability at that time to use their reasoning and their logic and say this is BS, you know, like bothersome stuff. And just stop it right in the right where they start. Once you let a little corporation or a gang, same thing, you know, it's a corporate gang, um, pass some ruling and you accept it, you acquiesce by your silence, and, you know, and most of your neighbors will just pay up, well, what can you do? What could you do? Um, and here you go. So as I say, because they jack up the price next door, they haven't sold it, by the way, and yet the taxes have gone up because... The guy from the tax office knew what they were wanting for it, so they adjusted all the prices in the area accordingly. Suddenly my swamp must be awfully desirable. Maybe I've got special mosquitoes here. 
Very special mosquito. Who knows? But that's the cons you live under. So uh, when I moved in here, I said, well, I'll, I'll get something uh, to the value that it won't, it won't annoy me if I have to walk away from it one day. Because I knew what was coming down the pike. I knew they were going to start to abolish private property until only the very, very rich and wealthy, who generally are working for governments, they're the ones who buy stuff in the country now, uh, will be able to afford it. I knew that. I'd read Agenda 21. I'd read all the different ones preceding articles from the UN uh, that the governments all signed. I'd read the books by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, who boasted in their books and the Council on Foreign Relations, their American brothers, that they introduced, they were the ones who introduced the personal income tax into both countries, the US and Britain and British Commonwealth, and property tax, and they take credit for that. Back in the early 1900s, back after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, just talking about perception and how we've been indoctrinated. We've had a uniform indoctrination, uh, scientifically organized, as Russell himself said, uh, and he was experimenting with with this back in the 1920s, to make sure that they create a a uniform, dumb, stupid society. In fact, he said this in one of his books called The Scientific Outlook. Bertrand Russell, Lord Bertrand Russell, you know, uh, it says, diet injections. So the kind of food you were going to be fed, you see, government would take over that too in, in collusion with private companies like, well, Monsanto, uh, Archer Dinal Midlands and all these guys. Diet injections, that's your National Health Service, they've got to get that through, make it mandatory. And injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. So listen to that again. Diet, injections, and injunctions. This is for the hard of thinking. Will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities, the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Now, I'm talking about taxis and stuff and things like that and how you think you can map out your life. I'll get this old check and I can get a cheap one, don't fix it up because they'll tax you on it, so I just left it as it was. And, and then they go and jack it up regardless because some yo-yo next door is trying to make a, is waiting for the right sucker to come along, as, as Barnum would have said, and uh, and buy their, their, their swamp, you know, basically. And um, But because of that, I've got to jack up my taxis too, you see. But most folk will just succumb to that and give in and say, oh, okay. What can you do, you know? Psychologically impossible. Psychologically impossible. Criticism of the powers that be will be psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so. Won't they? Have you noticed the UN's little stuff every so often when people are getting a, a bit ticked off in a particular country like Canada? Suddenly, it's the best country to live in, according to the UN stats, you know, and then they give a, a sliding scale. And then the next year, it's some other country that, that's uh, thinking of pulling out of the UN or they're fed up with their pot. So suddenly that shoots up to the top, the most desirable countries, and all this conology, you see, just to, just to condition us and 
keep us in a la-la land. Alice in Wonderland, that's what we're in today. You see, Alice in Wonderland, when you went down the rabbit hole, every, everything that worked on the surface was the opposite way around in the rabbit hole. You could never take anything at face value. It's like rain, for instance, you'd expect to get wet. Up here, as I say, with a new spring, you, you, you just have incredible bronchial troubles. Uh, the, the dry, the air is incredible. Even after a little sprinkle, as dry as could be, because the aluminum oxide that they spray into the air in the barium soaks up the moisture. That's what it does. That's why they put it in table salt, the kind you buy all nice and uh, ready for your little uh, pot to put into and sprinkle. Uh, they put aluminum, aluminum oxide in there too, for that reason. And it keeps it nice. Doesn't matter how humid it is, it won't clump up, you see. But this stuff in the air takes it right down to the ground, right down past your welly boots, actually rubber boots, and uh, there's nothing left in the air, you see. So all the laws that used to apply to what nature was are completely all upside down now. It's been like that for quite a few years. Now, when you look again into um, Huxley's, another friend, the other guys knew, they all knew each other because they all belonged to MI5, by the way. They, they wrote lots of novels too, and most of them, except for Huxley, uh, except for um, Russell, and uh, they also wrote non-fiction as well. But even novels were meant to to bring you into a way of thinking, and then I explained all that in America's Cultural Cold War, the book released with all the declassified stuff from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, how the CIA ran the whole cultural industry and hired hundreds of hack novelists and uh, and even put movies out there to influence the public's opinion into the new promiscuous society and all that kind of stuff. And they did the same in Britain, and they had uh, offices in every country in Europe. Now, George Orwell uh, wrote a lot of letters to to Huxley. Um, they both had been groomed uh, for the same managerial role of looking after society, but uh, Orwell kind of turned against it when he realized the, uh, the, the terrible cons were going on. Uh, but uh, in a letter uh, to George Orwell, Aldous Huxley said this, and this is from the, the book, it's published from the letters Aldous Huxley, by Harper and Rowe, 1969. It says, Within the next generation, I believe the world's leaders will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis... Now, that's been all over the papers. Now, they want to start giving drugs in the womb because they're going to predict that you're going to be manic-depressive or, or, or hyperactive or stuff like that. You see, I'm not kidding. It's, it's mainstream. It's no conspiracy stuff. It's mainstream. And it says, as instruments of government. Says, so conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government. So it's, so it's an instrument of government. Conditioning us is an instrument of government. You understand that? You th- what do you think government is there for? What do you really think? Do you ever think at all about it? You just accept it. But we are con- we're conditioned as an instrument of government. And they want to use narco-hypnosis and various techniques to make us more conditioned. It says, so this is more effective as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, in other words, threatening the public, and that the lust for power, his own class, you see, the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging them and kicking them into obedience. Back after these messages. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix and just showing how we're all conditioned and how we've been taught to perceive things uh, to serve the masters, not to serve ourselves. It's always to our detriment. And I gave an example about taxes and so on, because you see, even for your property tax, you get nothing back from it. You don't, I haven't signed a deal with anybody to pay them anything. So why am I being taxed, you see? I didn't ask for They, they don't fix the roads here. Uh, you, it's a separate tax for that. It's a separate tax for the schools and all these kind of things. It's all separate taxes. So you get nothing back. You're, you're being extorted by the gang, a corporate gang, and that's what uh, this is all. But it's all to do, again, with the, the abolition of private property because when they set up the Communist Party, the same bunch uh, actually who uh, set up the Royal Institute of International Affairs by a royal charter and the Council on Foreign Relations and the Fabian Society and special branches and all the foundations, uh, they'd already decided back then that the world they'd bring in eventually would have no private property except for uh, themselves, the ultra-wealthy. They could uh, waive all the laws and regulations because they would be serving mankind, you understand, in very high capacities. Yeah. All figured out, you know. But getting back to this this letter from um, to George Orwell from Aldo Huxley, who wrote, wrote Brave New World. He says, again, within the next generation, and this was written in uh, 1949, he says, within the next generation, I believe that the world's leaders will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government in clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied now, obviously, they accept the fact that they have a lust for power at the top. You see, all these people do. It can be completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging them and kicking them into obedience. In other words, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in Brave New World. That was with his artificially created uh, humans, even through um, uh, test tube babies, etc., etc., to get rid of the old types of humans, standardize society into the perfect beehive, which are alphas and betas and so on. Uh, well, we're seeing the movies too. There's two versions of the, uh, of uh, Brave New World out there that I've noticed. Uh, there's an older version, a newer version. They both have are very telling in the way it's presented. Well, we're seeing, and read the book as well, and also read uh, uh, 1984 by George Orwell, because they're right. They're using the Orwellian phase to go into the into the Huxleyan phase, and right now we're under the totalitarian phase of brute force and fear. And your police are now completely militarized, and there's so many alphabet suit, soup agencies out there that are wearing black outfits. You don't know who's who anymore, and often they don't know who's who themselves. But uh, this is all part of it as we, as we modulate into the genetic engineering to create the perfect, brave new world of compliant servants who all love their servitude. And you think that's far-fetched? <laughs> you've been, you've, who do you think uh, set up your school system? See, the behavioral psychologists set up your school systems and the, the methods of teaching, and never mind the topics of teaching, uh, 
for political correctness and all the rest of it. And they had to standardize the educational system a long time ago, starting with a national educational system in every country, and then uh, pushing it the next step. The same with countries, as we amalgamate, you always get a central system first for your for nation, then they do treaties with their brothers across the sea via the United Nations, and you've got and the UNICEF, of course, that's what they set UNICEF up for. And then you've got a coordinated, standardized system. So you can talk to the brain-dead in Britain and go over and share your brain-dead opinions with the brain-dead in Norway uh, or Canada or, or the States, because we've all had the same conditioning to make us happy servants and bring us all to the same conclusions because we've all been taught the same nonsense. We've all had the same conditioning. Simple. Behaviorists like Skinner and so on, and that's why uh, you find John Dewey and others were sent over to set up the American educational system and every other country's educational system at the same time. Many of them came out of the Frankfurt School, all believing in man being an animal. They could be just, uh, they believed that Pavlov proved it, that uh, they could be trained just the same way by conditioning processes as the animals had been. And... I've talked before about one of these guys, remember, because you see Obama as the first officially open uh, government the U.S. has had that's now run by scientific uh, oligarchies. As all these, and even the papers have acknowledged this, they call them science czars, for instance. And they, they all, a lot, all of, some of them actually had were card-carrying communists. Of course, very wealthy ones. People don't think about communists as being wealthy. They forget that some of the top communists in the planet in the Western world were extremely wealthy people. Like one of the prime ministers of Canada, Pierre Trudeau. But anyway, and he was a communist, by the way. He led the Comintern for Canada over young Comintern's young communists over to, to Moscow from Canada in 1952. He was a representative for it. But again, the communists simply work for the big bankers because it's, it's a better structured society. It's a fast-track method of standardizing a society under authorities, you see, and under authorities training the, ch- the children uniformly from, from coast to coast, you see. Sunstein's another one that Obama's got on his... his um, Never mind Holdren. I mean, Holdren was also into uh, sterilization by uh, order of the government to bring down the populations and doing it also uh, discreetly through covert means because he says he couldn't do it to the Americans the same way as he could obviously do it to the ignorant Indians, he said, from India. You see, that's what he said in his own book or the book Ecoscience he helped write uh, with Paul Ehrlich, another fanatic. But... Um, Here's Sunstein. Here's Sunstein. Now, Sunstein, again, is, is a, he's, he's, he teaches this stuff, behaviorism, to, on mass levels of psychology. Behaviorism. And he, he talked about, I read the article maybe a month ago, where he uh, advised the governments that they would infiltrate all patriot groups, and they'd also use uh, the Internet as well, with their, their cyborg teams and all that kind of stuff to infiltrate patriot networks and chat rooms and forums. They've been doing that for years, actually. And he said, uh, you, you disrupt, disrupt their being, for, uh, the reason for being, their, their convictions. Even religious groups can disrupt them by putting in certain amounts of information. It's weaponized words, weaponized uh, terminology, weaponized phrases. 
using psycholinguistics uh, under neurolinguistics. There is such a thing as psycholinguistics when you want to alter the psyche of the person that's hearing your program and you program them. And once they have no reason for being or they're unsure of themselves, they fall apart. You see? And this same Sunstein wrote a book, another book, you see, and it's interesting. I won't buy it, by the way, because I understand these, it will be very little for the public consumption and it's put out for public. It's nowhere near the stuff that they teach for themselves and use in high-level marketing, especially for governmental purposes. But the book's called Nudge. Now listen to this and how it's worded. The brain dead, of course, the ones who are conditioned uh, will will see the nice parts about it, uh, but they will miss the, the weaponized parts. It says, nudge, the gentle power of choice architecture. Right? Now, a lot of them will turn right off there and say, well, it's nice, it's probably about buildings. Now. Research by Richard H. Taller. It says, Richard H. Taller is the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics and Director of the Center for Research uh, Decision, Decision Research, very important, at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. And remember, too, he, he, um, he wrote this with, uh, along with, I think it was uh, Sunstein as well. And it says here, can subtle features of everyday decisions really enhance our health, wealth, and happiness? So it says our, okay? Okay. So it's collective. We're into over along with them. It's, this is how the self-help books start. Our, you know. A new book shows that they can and that it's possible to proactively. It's very proactive. I love their new terminology. You can always tell a generation by the terminology they use. Uh, active isn't good enough being actively towards it. No, proactive structure situations to nudge us towards better choices. Now, he says better, you start off, you see, while protecting or even expanding individual freedoms. Okay? Okay? Who decides that the popcorn butter in your microwave should be set the appliance to run for two minutes? Come to think of it, who decided that your microwave should have a popcorn button to begin with? Have you ever taken any time to think about how the button might affect your consumption of popcorn? Uh, and then he goes, so you're, you're, you're into the little pseudo-humor here to, to throw you right off guard, right? More importantly, do you think the person who designed the button considered these issues, such as buttered and burnt popcorn and so on? And the new book, Nudge Improvements, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Sounds very innocent. University of Chicago Graduate School of Business Professor Richard H. Taller and co-author Cass R. Sunstein of the University of Chicago Law School suggest that microwave designer is indeed anyone who determines how choices and options are presented to people. And remember that Sunstein's working for your government here, unappointed, of course, by the public, along with the other uh, scientists that believe in total control. Right? How they, the people who help to make your choices, how they can lead us to more satisfying lives by considering how their presentations can move us towards different choices and thus different experiences. Now, they start to eventually get into some real stuff. When somebody designs a grocery store, they imagine people will walk through the store in a certain way, says Tyler. This is for, really for the brain dead to start off. Of course, people are free to walk around wherever they want, but entrances at one side, cash raises at another, and store decisions. No, uh, designers know that those locations will influence the route that, 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 that most shoppers take. Then he goes into other examples, which we all know, or people who think about them anyway. Then he says, it's pretty clear that human beings could use a little help making the choices that bring us 
Okay, human beings, that's a differentiation from us here. It's pretty clear that human beings could use a little help by making the choices that bring us the outcomes we want. We want. He's talking from a, a, a particular profession here, right? For just a few examples, consider the numerous Americans who struggle to eat healthy, fail to save enough for retirement, or choose health insurance plans that poorly serve their needs. There's no doubt that the human mind has many reliable and impressive capabilities, but despite humanity's distinguished accomplishments in engineering, medicine, and other fields, few among us can claim never to have misplaced their house keys or left the car lights on. Thankfully... Behavioral science has produced remarkable insights into human fallibility, making it now possible to give people helpful nudges. Now, remember what you said before, to make the right decisions, right? Helpful nudges towards more satisfying and product or productive decisions. To do this, Taller and Sunstein suggest that we turn to choice architects. That's the guys who are going to make all the, the prompts for you, the Pavlovian prompts, you see. Anyone who helps shape the situations in which people encounter choices. Of course, some choice architects have long known how to structure situations to nudge people towards certain decisions. Well, they've been doing it for years, folks. Change is good. Change is good. <laughs> and no one says, well, what changes are you talking about? You know, doesn't get asked, you see. The person who designs the grocery store layout wants to make sure you walk by the aisles with the most profitable items and the items that are most likely to be impulsive purchases. That's why they keep changing it, by the way. Nudge is about using this power of choice architecture on behalf of the choosers to make the easiest, to make the easiest choices, the ones that people themselves will find to be the best. So they're going to bring you to make the easiest choice because they've decided as the controllers that it is the best. Then it's helping us to, to help ourselves. The world's a complex place, blah, blah, blah. Most of us do not have the time to, to think deeply about every choice we make. And Nudge, Tower and Sunstein explain that people look for rules of thumb for decision-making. These strategies, these strategies often work so well for the small decisions in life, such as buying a television from a trusted brand name, etc., etc., or, or joining a political party because your dad did. I added that part in there. <laughs> If anybody had ready access to complete information, unlimited cognitive abilities, and complete self-control, we'd likely deliberate much more about these choices and demonstrate unerring wisdom. Since that's not the case, we need some help to make the best choices. Nudge suggests that by following simple principles, choice architects can provide it. One of these key principles involves appropriately setting defaults in the human being. Understand, you're a computer, folks. Setting defaults. According to Taller, in any choice situation, the choice architect has to decide what happens in a system if the user does nothing. That's what we call a default. Now, remember I read the other day there from, I think it was Russell, he says most people when faced with making a choice or a decision will stand there and do nothing. In fact, what they'll actually do is look around and see who is making a decision. What are you doing? Well, I'm paying my taxes. Okay, I better do this. And that's what you do. That's how it works, folks. Defaults have immense power in a world of busy people. Limits on time, information, energy, and ability will often mean that people end up with whatever default option is given to them, whether or not it's the best option. 
Past research suggests that most of the time people will select a default option, either because they think that somebody made it the default because they thought it was good for them, or because they're lazy or just spaced out and forgot to fill out the form, explains Taller. The problem is that the people who designed the default may not have selected the default because they thought it was good for somebody. They may not have put enough thought into it. So what are they going to do about it? They're interested in all the small factors that influence the choices people make. Factors often under the control of the choice architect. That's like the grand architect, isn't it? Accordingly, the authors not only show how choice architects, now this is for governmental people, administrative people, uh, even down your town council people, and your schooling, can use defaults to promote better choices. To promote better choices. They also suggest that the choice architect should do the following, anticipate common errors, understand how people predict their experiences based on different choices, make complex choice information more comprehensible, provide choosers with useful feedback, and align the incentives of all the people influencing choices. Align them all. And it says, freedom through flexibility and feedback. According to Nudge, a good choice architect must be committed to freedom. Now listen how, remember the new freedom you heard about? The goal is to make it very easy for people to make choices to best serve themselves while ensuring that alternatives are not blocked, fenced off, or even significantly burdened. Taller and Sunstein herald this approach as a cornerstone of a new movement, libertarian paternalism. These were getting down the real stuff now for government, you see. Libertarian paternalism. You know, big daddy. Uh-huh. A new and coherent philosophy of economic policymaking, libertarian paternalism, is an approach designed to improve choices while vigilantly preserving freedom of choice. That's your new freedom, folks. Your big daddy is going to brainwash you and train you all in the same way so you'll all come to the same choices on the, on the same things. Isn't that nice? And this creep has been appointed, appointed, mind you, on the board, helping with the science czars to decide what kind of society after, after the last character, Bernays, that they're bringing in, the new one, the choice architects, back after these messages. And we're cutting through the matrix, just uh, talking about the new form of government, really, or governance, they call it governance, you see. It makes you think you have choices. It doesn't sound like a big, this one monolithic character, but uh, governance sounds a bit better, doesn't it? Again, that's psycholinguistics and neurolinguistics. And um, you're getting libertarian paternalism running your governments, you know, to bring you to the right decisions, the ones that are healthy for you, like what to eat and what you should do and how much exercise you should get and, and all that kind of stuff and blah, 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 you see, what, what Big Daddy wants. You know, the right decision. And Big Daddy knows you don't know. You're just too stupid, you see, to know what's better for you. Yep. You need prompts, you see, prompts, or conditioned reflexes. Now, I've talked about the militarization of food is weaponized. Food is weaponized. The farm industry was always weaponized because they were in hand with governments, especially during World War II, 
to do with the creation of uh, very deadly bacteria and viruses and fungi too, uh, which they could use across enemy territories, whole nations, and wipe out their livestock or the people themselves, or make sure the next generation were deformed or weak uh, and sickly uh, if there's going to be a long protracted war. The big boys think of uh, all these things, you know. That's the beauty of having all your tax money at work. You get crowds of psychopaths at the top, big, big, massive gangs of them with specialized departments that can work on all these tough projects. And this article came out in from, for the British public, actually, and just been released, but it was September 2006. And you see all the British Commonwealth countries, including Britain, have... Uh, Privacy uh, Information Commissioners, who comes out every year and tells you, and they have actually come out in Canada, told us you're losing all your rights and all your freedoms and your phones are tapped. And so, but I can't do anything about it, he says. They say, I can only tell you what's happening. But so this is a report 2006 for the British and Commonwealth countries, including Canada. It says, number one, here's a section from it. The, mil- the militarization of surveillance. Surveillance is all militarized. 8.3.1, I guess it's all chapters, to drive... I'm going to put these links up on my site, cuttingthroughmedias.com, at the end of the show, by the way. And you can go into the, the, the front page and the archives section and you find it. Uh, the drive to security is at least partly evidence of the continuing or revived importance of the military in Western societies. Military surveillance is one of the few phenomena that can be said to be truly global in an age where everything is supposedly being globalized. The Earth is increasingly surrounded by a multitude of military surveillance satellites. Chapter 8, uh, 3, 2. I'll put these up for you to peruse, and the whole document itself, too. In addition to transnational communications, systems are thoroughly interpenetrated and infiltrated by military surveillance systems, Even their invention, design, and protocols have military elements. One example is the Global Positioning Systems, which was developed and is still ultimately controlled by the U.S. military, which can alter its functionality in certain places and times when it suits military objectives. Another is the Internet. Yep, they designed that too, and they give it to you folks through their front organizations, you know, that you're, you know, the well-known brand names. Another is the Internet. This transnational system of network connections and protocols was in no small part based on the American military's ARPANET, Distributed Communications System, and so on and so on. But he goes on about how they're into everything and keeping all your records and all your communications and that these uh, cameras are going to go up in all countries, everywhere. And that they've been actually putting them up since the 1950s. Did you know that too? Project Echelon, etc. It goes through all that stuff and much, much more. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your God's go with you. <laughs>